Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a cardiologist historian provides an overview of five classic cardiac drugs, some hundreds and some thousands of years old. Aspirin came from the bark of the willow tree, and it was used for thousands of years before anyone made aspirin tablets. A bariatric surgeon explains what to expect if you're considering surgery for weight loss. They come to a seminar where it's very informative. We deliver all the information uh, that we have in terms of what are the differences between all the procedures. So we want them to have uh, at least an idea of what will be best for them when they come in. A public health scholar talks about the health care challenges of both access and policy that transgender people face. Healthcare providers refusing to treat a transgender person or a health insurance carrier refusing to cover the care that they need, that that is discrimination. All that coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore medicine, science, and health with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear about weight loss surgery options and how many pounds someone could expect to lose that way. Then, we'll discuss transgender health issues with a public health scholar. But first, we'll talk about five cardiac medications in use today that go back hundreds and thousands of years. A variety of drugs are used today to help people with heart problems. Some of the newer drugs were chemically designed in laboratories before going through years of expensive clinical trials and eventually gaining FDA approval. Some of the older drugs that are still in use today were discovered accidentally, but it still took years for them to become accepted and purified and widely used. Here to talk with us about five cardiac drugs that go back hundreds or thousands of years and are still in use today is Dr. Harold Smolian. He's an emeritus professor of medicine at Upstate who specializes in cardiology, and he's got a strong interest in history. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Smolian. Thanks for letting me come. I'm glad to have you here. So what made you want to investigate these particular medications? Well, I was always interested in, um, in the background of some of the aspects of cardiology, and some of these drugs go back very, very far in history. And uh, it was a way of looking back and seeing where we came from and how we got there. And they're uh, medications that you've prescribed for your patients over oh, the many, decades. Many, many times, yes. So uh, let's name the five drugs that we're going to talk about. Well, I, uh, I put them in chronological order, which also turns out to be alphabetical order. Oh. Uh, but uh, the first is uh, aspirin, and the next is atropine, and then digitalis, nitroglycerin, and lastly, quinidine. Quinidine, okay. And is it correct, is it my understanding that um, all five of these had other uses before they were known to have cardiological effects. Well, four of them did. Okay. Digitalis has been used for heart trouble uh, since its inception. Uh, but the other four all had other uses that, uh, that are rather interesting and have nothing to do with cardiology. Wow. Well, I want to get into each of them individually. So how about we start with aspirin? Where, where did aspirin come from? Aspirin came from the bark of the willow tree. And it was used uh, for thousands of years uh, uh, before uh, anyone made aspirin tablets. Uh, it was found uh, just quite accidentally that it was useful in relieving fever and, and, and pain. So it was used for what medically is called an antipyretic to reduce fever and to relieve the inflammation of pain. So it goes back how many, how many years back? We're talking Babylonian time? Uh, yes, that's right. It goes wow. back to Babylonian times because it was used quite by accident by the ancients to uh, relieve symptoms. I'm trying to imagine what made someone think the bark from a tree could be useful for anything. Well, in search for uh, relief of pain and, and symptoms, uh, people ground up leaves, barks, uh, anything that they could swallow in the hopes that they would work. So how did it get from tree bark to tap? I mean, they, tree bark, they would just chew on it? Yes, uh-huh. Huh, okay. Just chew on the bark. And then over the years, we came up with a way to turn it into a tablet form. Well, they ground it up and uh, made a soup out of it, I suppose. Okay. Well, tell me uh, how aspirin is used in cardiology now, because it's not used as a, well, I guess it is used as a fever reducer 
you know, on the shelf of your pharmacy these days, but in cardiology, what is it used for? Well, it was found that it interfered, it was found much, much later, uh, that it interfered with the clotting mechanism, and clotting is part of the disease atherosclerosis that causes blockade of the uh, coronary arteries and some of the other arteries, hardening of the arteries, if you like. So it's a blood thinner? In a way, it's a blood thinner, yes, and since... uh, Clotting is a part of atherosclerosis. It was given it a try to see whether it could modify the effects of atherosclerosis and reduce its, um, its frequency and its se- severity. Are there still a lot of um, people with heart issues that take an aspirin a day? Oh, indeed there are. Okay. Uh, aspirin's used widely to uh, prevent second attacks of, uh, of heart trouble. Uh, whether everybody should take an aspirin is still a controversial issue, but People who have heart trouble, known heart disease, are often given aspirin to prevent uh, second attacks. And I've heard the phrase baby aspirin. Is that just a lower dose? It's a lower dose. Okay. Wow. Well, let's move on to atropine. So this has an interesting first use, right? Yes, it it comes from a a plant called the nightshade. It's very poisonous, um, the nightshade is, and was used as a poison in ancient days, to uh, get rid of emperors and kings and enemies of emperors and kings. Um, so a poison used in, in as a as a war. Indeed, war yeah. Huh? Now, did I read that it uh, had it was used as a cosmetic as well? It was. Well, the story goes that Cleopatra used it to dilate her pupils in, in her eye. Uh, this was supposed to make her more alluring. Uh, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But she used it, and I think generations of other women have used. Uh, uh, drugs like atropine to uh, to dilate the pupils and make them look more beautiful. Huh, interesting. So how did it get from a poison uh, in to be used as, you know, a medicine? Well, it, it, it was, um, it, it's known to have a s- very specific effect on a part of the nervous system. And uh, uh, when it was used for that purpose, it was able to increase the heart rate when it was too slow. And it had many other uses outside of cardiology and ophthalmology, for example, it dilates the pupil, allows ophthalmologists to see the back of the eye more readily. Uh, although it's not used much anymore because it's very long lasting and there are shorter acting ones now that the ophthalmologists use, but they're similar. It's also um, an antidote for the nerve gases that are used in war. Uh, and and uh, I understand that some some of the military are provided with single injections of atropine should they encounter a nerve gas during uh, conflict. Wow, and so a nerve gas would um, make your heart race and the atropine makes it slow down? Or? Yeah, it would uh, interfere with the, uh, with the action of the, uh, of the nerve gas and, and uh, block its effect so wow. that the uh, nerve gas would be no longer effective. So now, it's an antidote. Is atropine for uh, people with cardiac issues, is it like aspirin in that it might be taken once a day kind of thing, or, or what is it used for? No, no, it's used uh, almost always intravenously. Uh, uh, you can't take it by mouth. Okay. And um, it's, uh, it's used uh, especially for, uh, for difficulties with, uh, with the heart rate as an antiarrhythmic. If the heart's going too slow, under certain circumstances, it will provide a way to make it go faster. So you'd probably be in a hospital if you're getting if you're receiving this That's intravenously. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, now um, digitalis. I read that digitalis was first used to treat something called dropsy, but what is that? Well, this is the only one that hasn't had a secondary use. Uh, digit- dropsy was really the term used for people who got swelling of the uh, of the feet or ankles. We call it edema now, but in those days it was called dropsy. And one of the causes of edema of the feet or dropsy is heart failure. And um, uh, the uh, person who discovered this and made it popular, popularized it was a man named William Withering. And he, uh, he got a, a soup from an elderly woman who presumably had powers that the practitioners in England didn't have at that time to treat dropsy. He was an eminent botanist. And although she used many plants in her soup, he deduced that the active principle was in a plant called the foxglove. And, and that uh, was in her soup? And that was one of the ingredients of her soup. And so uh, he, uh, he isolated the uh, foxglove ingredient and used it alone and found out in some patients with dropsy, that is those patients who had it from heart failure, uh, were improved. Obviously, 
a swelling of the ankles can come from a lot of other things besides heart failure, and it didn't very well work in those instances, but it did work in the people with heart failure. Was it, uh, so it's not an anti-inflammatory? Not at all. Um, how does it work? It, it's supposed to strengthen the beat, strengthen the contractions of the heart. Uh, it also controls, uh, sometimes when the heart goes very fast, it will slow its rate. Uh, so that it's a, at the time it was a very effective, in fact, it was the only effective cardiac medication for many years. How is it uh, taken today? It's taken, you can take it either by mouth or by injection. Um, it's, for years it was prescribed widely by mouth, but it's now been supplanted by other agents which are uh, more effective than it is, although it's still occasionally used. So there are still some patients that take digitalis? There are. Okay. Well, let me remind listeners, this is uh, Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Harold Smolian. He's a cardiologist and historian who's published a paper about five ageless cardiac drugs. We've talked about aspirin and atropine and digitalis, but I want to also make sure we go and talk about nitroglycerin because I think a lot of people have heard about that in relation as an explosive. Well, that's the confusing part about nitroglycerin because it is... Uh, an explosive was used widely for that purpose, and it also used for heart disease, especially to relieve the pain of angina pectoris or the pain in the chest from uh, coronary heart disease. It was um, discovered in the in the laboratory of a famous chemist in Paris, and um, Alfred Nobel went there to study chemistry, learned about this uh, compound, uh, but the the group in Paris had decided not to marketed commercially because it was too dangerous. It exploded all the time. And uh, what Nobel saw was a commercial possibility if he could control the, uh, the explosions that occurred. If and he so, could keep it from exploding. That's right, could, and, wow. and, and uh, allow it to only explode when someone wanted it to. So that was his big invention. He converted nitroglycerin into dynamite and made a fortune in doing that, and therefore he... Uh, financially supported the five Nobel Prizes that bear his name. Oh, interesting. It's also interesting that he developed angina later in life and was prescribed nitroglycerin to leave the, relieve his pain, but he wouldn't take it. Was, was he afraid of taking it? Or? <laughs> I'm, it's not clear to me uh -huh. why he refused to take it, although there was assurance that in the preparations that were made for medical purposes, there was no chance of it exploding. Wow. So nitro is a little pill or a tablet that dissolves, right? You yes, put it, in you your put mouth it under and... your tongue. Okay. There are also oral forms of the same of a similar medication that you could take by mouth. So in dissolving under your tongue, um, it, it works immediately? For... Nearly immediately, within minutes. Yes. Okay. As a pain reliever, because I know patients who have heart disease maybe have some of these to take as needed, right? They do. It's also used in the treatment of heart failure in some instances, so it has uh, many uses and still widely used for, uh, for the treatment of angina. And it's safe, it's not going to explode? It will not explode. Okay. All right, so quinidine or quinidine? We say quinidine. Quinidine. So what is that, and where did it come from? Well, it came from the bark of a tree as well. Um, the cinchona tree uh, was known that, uh, that the, uh, if you used the bark, you ingested the bark, that it would relieve... Um, it would relieve pain and, and diminish your fever. Uh, probably most of the fever that were treated at that time was from malaria. And so quinine, which was the original alkaloid from this bark, uh, has been found to be a very effective treatment uh, for malaria. And so that's the way uh, quinine uh, came from the bark. And quinidine is a chemical cousin of quinine and was found to be more effective for the heart than it was for malaria. So when you mention a pain reliever and fever reducer, it makes me think back to the aspirin we talked about. Um, but this works differently, or is it? Yes, this works, uh, this works prim primarily for the treatment of malaria. Aspirin works for fever of all kinds. Of all kinds. Okay, gotcha. So how can something that treats malaria help heart arrhythmias? Well, it, it was uh, probably an accidental finding that uh, pe people took um, uh, quinine, uh, for all kinds of fever at the time. And someone noticed that one of the uh, arrhythmias of the heart that he had subsided when he took quinine for fever. And so this uh, accidental observation led to the idea that there was something in the bark that would also help the heart. 
Well, these medicines we've been talking about, they've been around for so long, in some cases centuries. Does that mean they're safe? No, not at all. Uh, you can take too much of almost anything uh, and find that it's unsafe. It has to be used under uh, uh, controlled conditions to get the benefits without much of the risks. Does it mean they're inexpensive because they've been around for so long? Yeah, that's probably true. Uh, um, but when I wrote this paper, I checked on how much a vial of atropine costs, and it was four dollars and eighty-nine cents. Wow, uh, which is pretty cheap as medicines compared. Go. Sure, <laughs> absolutely. Well, um, in this paper that you wrote uh, about the history of medicine, um, what did you have like a conclusion that you drew after looking into all of these? I found it interesting that um, these medications never went through the process that's required now for a new medication to be used in clinical medicine. Uh, they were found accidentally, they were tried here and there, and it only took, it took many, many years for them to be isolated, purified, and made available in, in form that could be easily taken. Uh, there were no uh, clinical trials to find out if they were effective and what their risks were. All this was uh, determined by trial and error. Nowadays, uh, a new drug has to go ex through extensive testing to find out whether it's uh, safe, whether it's effective, and it's usually quite expensive at least at first. The present system takes probably years to get um, approval from its discovery through a widespread clinical use. Uh, but the early drugs um, was much cheaper, but it was, took much, much longer, uh, centuries sometimes, to figure out how it worked and what its benefits were. Wow, well, this has been very interesting. I thank you for your time. My guest has been cardiologist historian, Dr. Harold Smolian. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, what are your weight loss surgery options on Upstate's HealthLink on Air? From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. For some people struggling to lose weight, surgery may be an option. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Flavia Soto. She's the Division Chief for Bariatric Surgery at Upstate. Welcome, Dr. Soto. Thank you. How much weight can a person lose with bariatric surgery? Um, so we can see their success uh, after bariatric surgery. We use very specific, um, we can call them tools, and we use percentage of excess weight loss. If the patients at six months are able to lose 50% of their ex excess weight loss, that will be uh, a success. In terms of pounds, we can say uh, within a year, they can lose between 50 and 100 pounds. So significant. Significant weight loss. Okay. And we call it also rapid weight loss, which um, it makes a big difference uh, between the surgical weight loss versus the non-surgical weight loss. And is the surgical weight loss what you would find soon after surgery and the non-surgical is it keeps coming off in the days so after? So what we call uh, surgical weight loss versus non-surgical weight loss is um, implementing surgery. When we do surgery, we call the weight comes out because of the surgery we did. When we say non-surgical weight loss are those um, patients that they are going under a diet or nutritional plan plus exercising, combination of both might be the best results, but it's still if we compare one versus the other, surgical weight loss is still more successful in the long run. Okay. How do you as the surgeon uh, determine if a patient is motivated and will do well with surgery? That's a great question. Uh, and those, um, in the initial visit, we are very thorough in terms of assessing that motivation. But at the same time, as a bariatric program, uh, we must send these patients to have a psychological evaluation. Uh, what implies um, is the assessment of mental stability, 
if they are willing to take that big change in their lifestyle forever. So between our first assessment and that psychological evaluation, we'll have the final clearance for these patients from um, the psychological standpoint. Well, and imagine a patient would do some soul searching on their own before even arriving at the idea that maybe surgery is the answer. But um, who is eligible in terms of age um, or uh, overweightness? You have to be a certain... Right. So we have very specific criteria that they are based on NIH criteria from the late 90s. Um, We still use them and they are valid. So whoever has a BMI, that is body mass index, that is the tool that we use to qualify obesity these days, a body mass index of 40 or and above, those patients are candidate for bariatric surgery based on numbers. If we're a little below of a BMI of 40, uh, we can talk about candidacy for surgery when we start at 35 of a BMI. But these patients, they have to have some other medical problems that most of the time are related to the fact that they have obesity, such as hypertension, diabetes, for example. And so those are candidates also for bariatric surgery. Are there any health conditions that would disqualify someone from having surgery? That's a great question. So active cancers, um, active uh, or unstable psychological problems, um, intestinal, active intestinal problems with multiple resections, previous history of peritonitis, just to mention a few. Those would be patients that uh, they might not fare candidate for the surgery. Okay. Now, if I understand correctly, there are different ways to accomplish this surgery. So can you talk about what's offered and and compare the options for us? Yes. So we, um, in our practice, our app state, um, our base is at Community Hospital. We offer um, laparoscopic, all these procedures are done laparoscopically, by the way, sleep gastrectomies, laparoscopic Rouen-White gastric bypasses, or we call them gastric bypasses as well. And now recently we added uh, duodenal switches. Um, my partner, um, Jesse Gutnick, is the one that is, um, started performing uh, the duodenal switches. So when you say laparoscopically, that means um, it's not really an incision, but a, a small... Small incision. So uh, the old way of doing this procedure, and this is the way bariatric surgery started, was with big incisions from, you know, almost starting the chest all the way down to almost the pelvis. Nowadays, we do a small little incisions. We put cannulas inside this, uh, the abdominal wall. Through the abdominal wall, we insufflate with air, CO2, and then we create that space, um, and we are able to see with cameras, and that way we can perform the surgeries. So we call it minimally invasive approach or laparoscopic surgery. Advantages from doing this versus the open approach, the recovery is much faster. Some patients, they can go home within 24 hours. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let me ask you more about gastric bypass. So yeah. what are you doing? You're bypassing the stomach? Or? The biggest, so we are able to create a small pouch from the stomach and that bigger part of the stomach, though, is left as bypass. The food won't go through that route. And we also bypass the first portion intestine that is called duodenum. And so that's the reason also creates some malabsorption. Uh, so a small little pouch, and then we reroute the intestine. So that's a big difference versus the sleep gastrectomy, that in the sleep gastrectomy, we only remove three-quarter plus of the stomach. And we create like a... Um, like a long sleeve, that's the reason of the name, without touching the intestines. So you're in both procedures, the patient is left with a smaller stomach. Correct. um, So does that mean they can't eat as much? So we call it the, in any case, we are creating some restrictions. That is not the reason why ultimately this uh, this procedures work. It's one of the reasons why of there's no questions that portions, they have to be smaller because they have less room and satiety and less hunger, they come to play. And those two, the last two are more related to the metabolic changes that we create, just rerouting or just uh, resecting stomach or rerouting intestine. Okay. Now, how does a patient or how does the surgeon pick which patient 
gets which procedure? That's a great question. So there's multiple steps in order to decide uh, what surgery would be best for those patients. We make them come first as a first step towards um, introduction of uh, the practice. They come to a seminar where it's very informative and we deliver all the information uh, that we have in terms of what are the difference between all the procedures. So we want them to have you know, um, uh, at least an idea of what will be best for them when they come in. The other big, um, an important um, item that we have to consider is multiple uh, the, me- the medical problems they have. So that might define also what surgery might be best. For instance, if they have diabetes, we might consider gastric bypass. If they have reflux and obesity, gastric bypass might be best too. But um, some other... Um, Medical conditions might make us think also uh, based on medication that they're taking that the sleeve gastrectomy might be a better option. So those are discussions one-to-one with the patients based on their ideas because in the end they're going to be the one that they're going to have the surgery. I like to hear what their uh, their idea about what they want, but also our uh, responsibilities to come with the medical input in terms of what medical problems they have and what will be our best recommendation. So very individualized. Correct. Too. We try to customize based on, on the patient's uh, needs in any case. Yeah. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Flavia Soto. She's the Division Chief of Bariatric Surgery at Upstate. Now, you mentioned um, the information session uh, that often is the starting point for people, but what is the process after that? How soon would they meet you or another surgeon, and, and how soon would they potentially have surgery? So the how they access also, I will add something, how they access to the seminars through our uh, website. They can... Um, um, we'll put a link to that on the healthlinkonair.org website as well. Wonderful. But you go on and you can sign up for an yeah, information session. they can sign okay. up through our website actually um, uh, to the seminar, and after they come to the seminar... Uh, we can, uh, there's some paperwork that has to be uh, filled in, and then after that, they are going to be able to um, schedule for the first appointment or initial visit with uh, the surgeons. Okay. So um, once you've identified that this particular patient um, is a good candidate for surgery and you have a surgical date on the calendar, what can the patient do ahead of time to optimize their results? Is there anything they can do? Absolutely. So their commitment is imperative for this kind of procedure. So the procedures actually is the last thing we do. And given a surgical day might take a, a time. And the reason why there are certain conditions by, driven by insurances these days, these patients they might need to be with us for a few months uh, during a process that we call a medical supervised weight loss. So mm-hmm. what implies is they come monthly Average in the state of New York, six months, but we have some insurance that they are requesting only three months. Uh, it this varies based on insurance requirements and, and again. Um, and so during those months, they will come in. They will see uh, the provider, um, most of the time the surgeon, um, or our meat levels at, in the practice, and they will see our dietitian. That's the way we're going to coach them and introduce them to the changes that they need to start working on prior to go to surgery. That is for me, and based on all these uh, years that I've been doing this, is prime time for them to implement all these lifestyle changes, especially in the nutrition. Um, if they are able to lose some weight, actually some sometimes there's some correlation with uh, success after surgery. Again, this is a tool that will help them to or assist them in the process of losing weight, but the lifestyle change is up to them. So surgery will work. No, there's no questions, but the lifestyle change has to be implemented as well to make them successful for the rest of their lives. How much of a success rate is there for the weight loss surgeries? Do Are most people able to lose and keep off the mm-hmm. weight? So the evidence uh, shows that... Um, there's more success rate, can reach up to almost 70% in the long run in terms of success rate and maintaining the weight down uh, if we compare bariatric surgery versus non-surgical weight loss, meaning just the diet and exercise um, programs. So that said, the non-surgical weight loss is, the literature also 
says that is between 5 and 10% success in the long run, which is a big difference. Achieving a goal of 70% of long, uh, long-term success is a big number for medicine. So um, as you see, it's more successful. There's no questions versus non-surgical illness. There might be some you know, specific papers or under specific programs they are able to achieve maybe higher weight loss with non-surgical weight loss, but it's still the number that we can reach with surgery is by far uh, higher. Well, and it, it sounds like surgery isn't just the quick fix either. It sounds like there's a lot of work on the patient's part to maintain really a new lifestyle afterward, right? Absolutely. Um, and you just um, uh, touch a very important um, topic because, um, you know, there's no questions that coaching from the nutritionists and dietitians, registered dietitians uh, uh, that we have in our program, plus the behavioral component assessment prior to go to surgery are key components of what we do and, and will determine also a good outcome. There's no questions that if we set up these patients um, for best outcome, those two uh, important items that have to be assessed prior to surgery. Now let's talk real, real briefly about what recovery is like. Mm-hmm. Um, is this an overnight stay in the hospital? or So th- th- it's an admission. Uh, we do the surgery one day, and uh, in my experience, uh, more than 60%, um, almost 70% of the cases, they go home 24 hours after. So that means that we see them in the morning, we make sure everything is fine, uh, that we can advance their diet from clear liquid diet to some thicker type of diet, and then they can go home by the end of the day. Um, reasons why patients might stay longer, most of the time is some nausea or pain-related, um, but average is between one two days in the hospital. Okay, well, good to know. So let me ask you why you chose to go into and become a bariatric surgeon. By the time I was finishing my um, surgical training in Argentina, uh, bariatric surgery actually was blooming, and minimally invasive procedures were just starting, and so it was very attractive to me. I, I was always very interested in the foregut, meaning the beginning of the the gastrointestinal tract that will include esophagus, the stomach, and first portion of the intestine. So bariatric surgery would be the right fit for that. Uh, so that triggered actually for me to come and do some research in Cleveland Clinic in Florida. And then I pursued um, further training here in the U.S. And here we are. So this is what I love. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming in and uh, telling us about this option for people. My guest has been the Division Chief of Bariatric Surgery at Upstate, Dr. Flavia Soto. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, health issues that affect transgender people. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Issues affecting transgender people seem to be at the forefront, advanced through discussions by medical leaders, policymakers, and the media. This comes after decades of invisibility, but it's not without controversy. Here to talk about this with me in the HealthLink on Air studio is Kellen Baker. He's the Centennial Scholar in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, and he's at Upstate to give a lecture about transgender health policy. Welcome, Mr. Baker. Thanks so much for having me, Amber. What percentage of the population is transgender? So this is actually surprisingly difficult to figure out. One of the big reasons for that is because there traditionally hasn't been a great deal of regular data collection on federally supported surveys or any other type of place where we typically get pictures of what the U.S. population looks like, who are people living in the United States, according to factors such as race or ethnicity or primary language or any of those factors that we might see on a survey. 
gender identity has historically not been there. Over the last couple of years, however, an increasing number of surveys, such as the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System, which is a survey that is asked by every state in partnership with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And thanks to some of that increased data collection, we've been able to get some estimates. So estimates range pretty widely from about 0.2% of the population to about 3% of the population. The most recent numbers that come from the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System are an estimate that about 1.4 million Americans are transgender, which is about 0.6% of the population. Oh, interesting. Well, let's talk about um, in, uh, transgender people in terms of access to medical care. Is it hard to find uh, a doctor just for sore throats and normal kind of run-of-the-mill sorts of medical care? It really is. I mean, one of the biggest consequences of the long-time invisibility of transgender people and the historical lack of interest in the needs of transgender individuals is that there has historically not been a focus on making sure that healthcare providers know who transgender people are, know what their healthcare needs are, and even more concerningly, when you look at how expensive care often is in the United States, health insurance carriers have frequently not covered any care related to being transgender, which has historically been very broadly interpreted to mean pretty much anything that has happened to a transgender person. So for example, oh, you have uh, hypertension or you've had a heart attack or what have you, or even what a lot of people refer to as the transgender broken bone syndrome. You have a broken bone, well, that might be because you were playing a sport well, but really we think it might be because of those hormones. So we can't actually treat you, we can't actually cover the care that you need because everything about transgender people is assumed to be related to gender affirmation or to gender transition. Are there people who see that as discriminatory? That has increasingly been the pose that a lot of, well, previously the federal government had actually released a regulation in 2016 that described the ways in which transgender people have historically faced barriers to health insurance coverage and healthcare, and noted that, for example, healthcare providers refusing to treat a transgender person or a health insurance carrier refusing to cover the care that they need, that that is discrimination and that it is not allowed, in that case under the Affordable Care Act. The current federal administration is backing away from that position, but Fortunately, I would say, for the benefit of transgender people across the country, that that is actually starting to take hold as something of a norm that we're seeing in a lot of hospitals and other healthcare organizations and health insurance carriers as well as recognizing that transgender people are people and their healthcare needs are just as legitimate as the healthcare needs of anybody else. So they should be able to get the care they need when they need it. So do you have any examples of um, people that have been affected by not being able to get health care? Yes, unfortunately, this is something that happens quite a lot in some of the reported cases. Um, Kyler Prescott, for example, a uh, young transgender boy who committed suicide after being repeatedly misgendered and mistreated in a mental health clinic that was supposed to be helping him and supporting him in his gender identity. There's, for example, another case, uh, another transgender man named Jay Callio who died of breast cancer after a significant delay in his treatment because the doctor never communicated the diagnosis because he was so uncomfortable with the fact that Jay was a transgender man. So Jay actually found out about the diagnosis by accident when a nurse called to ask him how his treatment was going. And he had to say, treatment for what? And within a couple of years, unfortunately, that delay proved fatal. Well, let's talk about what healthcare is like for transgender people. Um, if they have trouble finding a provider to begin with, um, that's got to be difficult to get care of any sort, right? Most definitely. One of the biggest barriers for transgender people is either the experience of discrimination that they encounter when they're walking into a doctor's office, for example, being told, we don't treat your kind here, or the fear of discrimination because the transgender population is relatively small. I mean, 1.4 million people, but still word travels fast about where's safe and where's not. And historically, a lot of places have not been safe for transgender people to seek healthcare services, either because they won't get the care that they need because the doctor or the provider doesn't know how to provide it, 
or because of, again, a door that is simply closed in someone's face. So there's a number of surveys that have looked at this issue over the last couple of years. One of the biggest is the USTS, or the U.S. Transgender Survey, which is a nationwide survey of almost 28,000 people that was done in 2015. And they found that about one in four transgender respondents, again, out of 28,000 people from across the country, almost one in four, 23%, reported avoiding healthcare when they needed it because they were afraid of experiencing discrimination. And that's the kind of thing that contributes to, unfortunately, the health disparities that we see in this population, higher rates, for example, of totally preventable conditions such as cardiovascular disease or HIV. Well, I would hope that just like word travels about, you know, this is not a safe place to go. Hopefully word would travel when there is a provider who's welcoming um, mm-hmm. that maybe that would, you know, make make the rounds through the population. and mm-hmm. bring Most definitely. And, it, and it's actually interesting. Um, the, there are providers here at, uh, at Upstate who are becoming known as providing care related to gender transition, helping people, um, for example, when they've had surgery somewhere else and need follow up care. Um, and there are a, a handful of places, um, both in New York, uh, upstate New York, and then across the country, where word is starting to get out that there are providers and hospitals and health insurance carriers and organizations that want to make sure that trans people can get the care they need. So transition-related care, um, are insurance, health insurance providers covering that these days? Increasingly so, and this is related to the actions that we were talking about earlier with regard to non-discrimination, the regulation from the federal government that expressly said that you cannot have a coverage exclusion in your policy that targets transgender people, because the health care that transgender people need is for sometimes the condition that's called gender dysphoria, or is for the purpose of, as I prefer to call it, gender affirmation. But the services and procedures that are being provided are really no different from those that might be needed by cisgender, that's non-transgender people, for a variety of other conditions, such as an endocrine disorder or reconstructive surgery following cancer or an injury. So health insurance carriers are increasingly coming around to this recognition that, again, transgender people are just people and that their health care needs are just as legitimate as those of anybody else. Um, Here in New York State, actually, there has been uh, a couple of rounds of changes at the state level to enhance or advance upon those protections at the federal level. So a couple of years ago, the Department of Insurance here in New York, the Department of Financial Services, uh, issued a bulletin that interpreted state law, existing state law, to say that it is not permittable to have transgender-specific exclusions in private insurance. And subsequently, uh, New York State Medicaid also made that change, which is incredibly important, um, both because of the importance of state action with the changes on the federal level and with regard to Medicaid because of what we know about the severe experiences of poverty that many transgender people experience and the degree to which Medicaid coverage can be so life-saving. All right. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with uh, visiting lecturer Kellen Baker from the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health about transgender health policy. Are there health issues that disproportionately affect transgender people, not related to gender affirmation or, mm-hmm. or any of that care, but are there other mm-hmm. health issues? So that's a great question. And it's interesting because, you know, not related to gender affirmation in the sense of not necessarily healthcare services that are needed for gender affirmation, but looking at the experiences that transgender people have of stigma, prejudice, and discrimination, what are the ways in which those experiences manifest in the health of transgender people? So for example, higher rates of depression and anxiety are very common in the transgender population. And suicidality, for example, the rate of suicide attempts in the transgender population is about nine times higher than in the general U.S. population. And that's, again, because of this embodiment of the stigma and the discrimination that so many transgender people are experiencing on a day-to-day basis, not just in healthcare, but in employment, at school, walking down the street. Nine times. Nine times higher. Um, There was a survey by the CDC in 2014 that looked at health-related quality of life And it found that compared with cisgender adults, transgender adults smoke more and are less physically active. 
Why mm-hmm. would that be? And that again relates back to it's actually a a sort of concept or a model that's called minority stress. And what it does is it seeks to describe this pathway by which these experiences of discrimination become manifest in people's physical and mental health. So for example, if you are dealing with constant stigma, bias, discrimination, when you're just trying to go about your day-to-day life, what are some of the ways that you might be coping with that? Some of the ways that you might be coping with that include, unfortunately, health risk behaviors that might include higher rates of tobacco use. So that's all the more reason why it's been so important in focusing on how to get rid of some of these barriers to healthcare, because we do know that there are some risk factors that are higher in the transgender population. For example, you noted smoking or tobacco use. And so making sure that transgender people can get access both to gender affirming care and to those regular preventive services, those regular healthcare services that we all need and that we all need to make sure that we're staying on top of our health and staying healthy. Let's talk about where things stand policy-wise in 2018 in terms of protections for transgender people. It's really something that is becoming um, a very unfortunate point of contention isn't even strong enough a word. Um, The previous presidential administration, President Obama, had instituted a lot of changes that were making it easier for transgender people to get the health care that they need and to have protections in places such as employment and in school. And the current administration does not believe that these are important changes, and in many cases has actually indicated its intent to undo those changes entirely. So one of the very first changes that the incoming Trump administration made was to rescind guidance from the Department of Education that had made it possible for school districts nationwide to ensure that transgender young people can use appropriate facilities, the bathroom right? Making sure that they can be recognized as the boys or girls that they are, that they can go to school and feel safe and have access to the facilities that they need to get through the day, right? Everybody needs to use the bathroom. And when it comes to healthcare protections, again, the regulation from 2016 explicitly included non-discrimination protections for transgender people in health insurance coverage and healthcare. And the administration in a pretty widely uh, televised or, or high profile move has signaled its intent to remove those protections from the law entirely. This was, uh, listeners may be familiar with the story that broke, I believe it was in September, uh, with a leaked memorandum from the Department of Justice indicating the administration um, does not agree with the legal position that existing non-discrimination laws include transgender people. And so there's been a lot of speculation about what exactly that attempt to rescind or eradicate those protections will look like. Um, but unfortunately, it's something that runs counter to what the evidence shows transgender people need, which is access to not just gender affirming care, but any type of care that anyone should have in order to make sure they can be healthy. Um, military service too, right? Yes, military service with... is another, another major flashpoint. Um, and in fact, I think just last Friday, Um, The uh, Trump administration was reported as having asked the Supreme Court to allow the transgender military ban, so the reinstatement of the ban on transgender people serving openly in the military. Um, The administration has asked the court to review, um, and presumably with the expectation that that uh, policy will be allowed to go through. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for your time. My guest has been Kellen Baker, the Centennial Scholar in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. How do we deal with great sorrow? At first there's the shock, the horror, then a numbing, perhaps finally a sense of release, if not relief. Listen to how poet Anna Berkovich describes the process in swift and lacerating verses. Here is her poem, Don't. Don't let that soul wound heal. You'll regret it. Scratch at it with sharp nails. 
let it bleed. Let the crimson trickle be a daily call to resist. Resist forgetting. Resist letting the pain be soothed by life. Chicken in the oven, dust on the armoire, unpaid bills piling up, laundry tumbling in the dryer until it turns to dust. Don't fool yourself. Don't delude yourself that things will never be the same. You'll still brush your teeth, reach for the soap bar in the shower, rummage for fresh underwear, turn on the news. Even in time, your hunger will return. You'll yearn for a hot meal, not the bagel you used to grab on the run, or the stale donut eaten at midnight, the last one from DD before they closed. You will answer the phone, at last. I'm okay, you'll say, for how can you keep saying things are bleak? You'll feel you must lift the caller's spirits to keep them from drowning in your sorrow. And soon, you'll start believing it, almost. That will be the exact time to rip open the scab, to remember things will never be the same. In Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, an exercise physiologist explains the new exercise guidelines. A professor tells how communication between partners can improve the self-management of diabetes. And a registered dietitian nutritionist goes over two trendy ways to eat, the paleo diet and the keto diet. If you missed any of today's show, Listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.